Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Perhaps you have heard these words before. Dying, Christ destroyed our death. Rising, Christ restored our life. Christ will come again in glory. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys to hell and death. Because I live, you shall live also. Can you remember where you heard those words? I've offered them many times because they are the words that begin every service of death and resurrection we perform. The service of death and resurrection is the order of worship we use for funerals. Every funeral in our church begins with that particular liturgy. And whereas those words are true and powerful, the moment they are typically offered can be a difficult time to pause and understand the good news they bring. Never have I begun a funeral with that liturgy and then said, hey, let's just stop and pause and talk about that for a minute. Let's think about what that means. It's not the right time or place. So today, I thought would be a good time to consider them together as we continue our series, The Cross. During this season of Lent, we are once again journeying towards Easter by way of the 40 days of fasting and prayer. We're doing so as we discern the many ways that the church has understood the purpose and the impact of the cross of Jesus Christ. As we were preparing for this series over the course of the past few months, one of my favorite things that Michael suggested is that each sermon, each week, is meant to our, direct our attention to the cross in the same way a great painting captures our attention. In one moment, we're right up against right up against the canvas. You can see the brush strokes. You can see the fine details. In the next moment, we step back and take the whole picture in one glimpse. And yet, in another moment, we can look carefully at the way that the light falls on the painting. And when we try to find the words for why we love that painting, it's not because we think that these words will substitute for the painting itself. They cannot describe entirely the beauty that we are beholding. Instead, the right words illuminate and glorify the painting, helping us to see what was there all along. The sermon and these sermon series are meant to help us see the glory of Christ crucified from different angles, different perspectives, because there's a lot of ways to understand the cross, the reason why it happened, its effects on the world. Just last week, we considered how Jesus on the cross paid the debts of our sins and set us free. The ransom theory, that Jesus was a ransom for many. And today, I would like to offer another perspective. Today, I would like for us to look at another ancient idea of the church called Christus Victor or Christ the victorious. Because according to this theory, Jesus redeemed us by proving himself stronger than death by defeating death. 
This is the atonement theory that most demonstrates the active nature of God's goodness. That God is at work in the world. In my humble opinion, this is the theory that produces some of the best music. Right, choir? This is the, this is the, the, the theory from which we get songs like, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with the saints to reign. And my personal favorite, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Our hymnody really leans into the music about Christ's victory. And I think it's in part because human history lends itself to being concerned with victors of war. For as long as there have been humans, there has been war. War between tribes, war between nations, war between allied countries. It's a thing of our history books, and sadly, it's a thing of our news cycle. Just these past few weeks have been a sobering reminder that our species not, has not yet progressed beyond the unsettling truth that we are a warring people. And as long as there have been wars, people have tried to develop weapons that give a competitive advantage, weapons that enable us to defeat our enemies. In fact, some of the ages of history are named based on the things they crafted, primarily the weapons they made. Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age. Sticks and stones turned into bronze and then iron swords and knives, which later became bows and arrows and then guns and bullets and then grenades and then missiles and atomic bombs. Now we have cyber and biological weapons. Our weaponry has advanced to such a point we now feel the threat of annihilation with just the push of a button. After the Manhattan Project, the project that crafted the first atomic bomb and the brought to the end World War II. Albert Einstein, whose science was used for that project, though he himself did not participate, he said, I know not what we, I know with I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. He was so convinced that the state of advanced weaponry was becoming so destructive that at some point everything that the weapons of war could destroy, they would. And we'd have to start over. Humans' preoccupation with war and weapons is as ubiquitous with our history as language and civilization. And the Bible is all too familiar with these realities. The entire Old Testament are stories of war, of the Israelites winning and losing wars, being kicked out of their home home country because they lost and were in exile. When we enter the New Testament, it begins with the focus of the Israelites as they are occupied by a foreign government because they lost a war. And Jesus himself is no stranger to these realities. In fact, he sees himself as waging a war. Although Jesus' ministry was entirely nonviolent, he continually used war metaphors to describe his calling and to the mission that he gave the church. And this theory of atonement and the songs that we sing that affirm this reality means that Christ was victorious in his battles. But Jesus did not battle his neighbors. 
No, he did not fight against a foreign nation or an enemy that was knocking at the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus waged war against the evil that does not wield swords or bombs. No, death is the ultimate weapon of mass destruction for the enemy. Jesus' battle was against evil. The ultimate enemy of Jesus is evil. Jesus warred against the consequences of sin, against the results of participating in evil. In the gospel lesson we just read this morning, Jesus was entering a house to eat with his disciples, and it was so crowded that they could not even sit down and have their meal. Tons of people were gathering, pushing in, wanting to hear what Jesus had to say, wanting to know what Jesus was going to do, wanting to see the miracles Jesus would perform. And every time people gathered to hear Jesus, others came to oppose Jesus. And so it was in this story. The religious leaders came down from Jerusalem, and it says that those who taught the law, they came to oppose him. And they said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. These religious authorities, they were trying to convince others that Jesus himself was evil. They thought that what he taught and what he stood for was evil. They thought he must have been possessed by evil spirits because the things he said and the things that he did, they came up against the things that they believed and stood for. And Jesus exposed their complaint for the farce that it was. He said he called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. He said to them, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end will come. Jesus tells them, y'all's logic is just flawed. It doesn't make any sense. If I were evil, why would I want to come heal those that suffer evil? Wouldn't it be counterproductive to me? to fold the plans of Satan if I myself was sent by Satan? He concludes by saying, in fact, no one can enter into a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then they can plunder the strong man's house. And this is such a revealing line in this story. Jesus is, is showing us a glimpse into his plans, the crux of his fight. He says, when you tie up your enemy... When you take them out of the game and remove their weapons, only then can you be victorious. If armies that battled in the 16th century took away the enemy's swords and bows, the opposition would have no chance. Today, if we removed all nuclear capabilities and connection to the Internet, to those that are most likely to use it for harm, they would be unable to wage war in our modern era. And that's exactly what Jesus did in his battle. In his life, Jesus showed that there is a power greater than evil. That there is a way to live that succeeds over sin. Jesus' victory was in part by showing how to combat the evils of this world with the weapons of grace and mercy. Kindness and generosity. He showed that of all the things that exist in the world, the only things that will remain in the end when all is said and done, and when Christ has come again, are those things that are born out of love. Everything else will fade away. But his actions and his teaching, they were not the end of Jesus' battles. 
No, Jesus' final victory came at Calvary. On the cross, Jesus unleashed a power that was even greater than death. The cross of Jesus Christ accomplished the greatest victory that's ever been and that will ever be. Jesus defeated death itself. Because death is the ultimate enemy. That thing that without Christ doesn't ever lose. It's the greatest weapon that we all face, right? It's the thing that stakes its claim on every person's battlefield of life. Lent reminds us that we will all die. But the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is Christus Victor. Christ the victorious. That Jesus has won that ultimate battle for us. That Jesus succeeded in the greatest war of all time. In the epistle lesson we read earlier, Peter says that the cross even initiated what Warren Smith calls a commando raid of hell, wherein Jesus claimed the souls of those who had died without knowing the good news. For those that went on before Christ's crucifixion and for those that have died without hearing the good news of the gospel, the gospel becomes a military term for a victory announcement. An announcement that their loss to death is not eternal. And friends, Christ's victory over death has the same weight for our lives as it has for any life in history. It's the same good news for you and for me. It means what that liturgy in the beginning we heard says it means. It means that in dying on the cross, Christ destroyed death. It means that when Christ rose again, that we too are able to be born anew in Christ. It means that one day Christ will come again in glory and we will live with Christ and the great cloud of witnesses in eternal life. That we will be reunited with those that we love and that we have lost. Because death has no hold. Oh, death, where is your sting? Those who believe in Christ, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes shall never die. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. He holds the keys to hell and death. Because Christ lives, we too shall also live. And so if we share in Christ's victory, we too have victory. We share in Christ's victorious defeat of death. And because of that, we live as a victorious people. And that's, that is very important for us to remember, to recognize, to embody. It might be the most important thing I say today. We are victorious people. We have a share We live and join in the victory of Jesus Christ. But, however, it seems like we do not live our lives as if that were true. We are a victorious people, but we often live as if we have been defeated. As if we were on the losing side. Oh, I'm not talented enough. I'm too flawed I'm too insignificant to matter to the work of the Lord. 
Even though we know the truth is that Christ's victory has set us free, we think and act and behave like we are on the losing side of the battle. But as a person of faith, we are enlisted in the Lord's army. And God has given us the most effective weapons in existence. If you want to fight the battle that God wages against evil, all you have to do is live a life of love. To show kindness, to offer grace and mercy when the world has taught you to offer the opposite. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in one of my favorite speeches or sermons he ever offered called the drum major. He said, and Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. He goes on to say, the thing I like about it, by giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato or Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you too can be that servant. Those are the weapons of the kingdom. And we employ them not by trying to lord our greatness over everybody else by look, look, look at me. But by serving. Because, friends, most of society is built on apathy to the plight of anyone other than ourselves or our family. But the kingdom is built on empathy. Almost every commercial on TV teaches you to embrace, embrace selfishness. But the kingdom teaches selflessness. We think to be successful, you have to be right. But God teaches us to combat evil, you have to be righteous. We do not fight with swords or guns or bombs, not because we are nice people, but because we believe we have a greater power. The greater weapons are love, forgiveness, and resurrection, because those are the things that really do win in the end. Those are the things that last beyond this life. You know, in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, the prophet offers this. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Although many of the prophecies in the Old Testament came to their conclusion in the New Testament, this is one that we, like the rest of the world, are still waiting to see fulfilled. We know the world is not yet as it should be. There is still evil. And sadly, there is still war. If you read our Long Dauphin Way this week, you can see a way that you can help respond to the crisis in Ukraine right now. Because those things are very real. But we do believe that there will be a day when even this too will be fulfilled. When nations will not go to war. We believe that because Christ has already won the most significant and final battle, that one day all will be made well. And that Christ has given us the weapons that will make this prophecy a reality. Every single person has some power given to them by God to help redeem the world. 
We're often reluctant to exercise that power because it requires for us to sacrifice, to serve, to show that maybe we're not the greatest. And sometimes we might be scared that it might not accomplish anything. What if we pour out ourselves and nothing changes? But because we know that Christ is the victor, we know that any defeat we may suffer between here and the hereafter is temporary. And that his victory is permanent. And that's what we're fighting for. When we live our lives by employing the weapons of God's kingdom with the full knowledge of Christ's victory, then one day we will all realize, as Frederick Buechner once said, the worst things that could happen will be nothing to fear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.